Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And Jay, let me just say um, that I want to thank you for that second best introduction I've ever received. What was the first? Well, the first, um, I was asked to speak at a Rotary luncheon, and the Master of Ceremonies didn't show up, so I had to introduce myself. <laughs> uh, seriously, this morning, I am very, very excited to share with you a new project which I'm involved in here at Grace Point. It's called Evangelicals and Guys Lead Everyone to Salvation, otherwise known as EAG. L E S. Eagles! <laughs> All right. Isn't that special? See, Philly special. Um, I really do deeply appreciate the opportunity to be with you today. Jay mentioned briefly, he approached me at our life group and asked if I would consider speaking this morning. And when I agreed, I couldn't help but be reminded of the man who had entered his mule in the Kentucky Derby. When his friends had inquired whether he really thought the animal had a chance to win, the man replied no, but he said, I feel the association will do him good. And I'm kind of like that mule this morning because I always feel better when I associate with the men from Grace Point. So in the brief time I have this morning, I would like to share with you some significant and poignant moments in my life around loss, love, and life, and how those moments have changed and shaped me. But before I do that, I think it makes sense to go back and tell you where my journey began. I was born and raised in northeastern Pennsylvania, coal country, as it's known. I am the son of John and Angeline Solani. My father's ancestry is traced to northern Italy, Perugia. My mother's family, her ancestry is traced to Palermo, Sicily. You should have seen those family gatherings. You want to talk about dysfunctional. I mean, you had relatives speaking, saying you don't even speak the same language, but it was all, all in good fun. I am the middle child of an older brother and two younger twin sisters. And we grew up in a very modest middle-class neighborhood and did the things that most of our friends in that particular neighborhood did back then when you were Italian. We yelled a lot and we talked with our hands. <coughs> and for those of you that are Italian, you know what I mean. But I think what, our, what made our family, I guess, a bit different from other Italian families back then is that we didn't attend Catholic Church. You see, being Italian and Catholic where I grew up was like having spaghetti and meatballs. You can't do one without the other. But. In order to better understand who and where I am today, I have to go back even a bit further. My father's father was killed in the coal mines of northeastern Pennsylvania when my father was a very, very young boy. With no viable means of support, my father and his family, which included his sister, his brother, his mother, moved in with his aunt, his mother's sister, and their four children. His aunt was married to a missionary who immigrated from Italy and started a church in the town where I grew up. The church was known as the Italian Christian Church. As I became older, I realized the full name was the Italian Christian Pentecostal Church. My father, being raised in that environment, 
carried over many of the traditions of his upbringing to us when he became a father. One story I'll share with you that my father shared with me that said shaped his faith very early on was that the time they didn't have much food left in their pantry. There were 10 people in total and by no means, by no means were they um, wealthy. But he remembered overhearing his aunt say one day that they had enough pasta for about one more meal and that was about it. Pasta was a daily staple back then. Well, as it turned out, his aunt kept reaching into that bag of pasta for the next seven days and was able to feed all ten daily until some additional funds came in and they could replenish their supplies. He believed it was a miracle, and so do I. He shared a verse with me related to that. Matthew 6.31 states, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? As stated previously, my father being raised in that environment carried over the traditions of his upbringing to us, which included attending services on Monday night, Tuesday morning, Wednesday evening for the filling of the Holy Spirit, Friday night, Saturday morning, and of course, two services on Sunday. The first being in all Italian, you know, fire and brimstone kind of stuff. See, we lived in a small apartment in those days above my grandmother's house, which was directly across the street from the church. There was no excuse, none whatsoever, for not attending any Sunday service. And then after Sunday service, we did what all Italian families do. We ate. Oh, we ate. It was a, it was a marathon of food. But as you can expect, I learned two very important lessons from my formative years regarding my early church experiences. First, I became bilingual. No, no, not in English and Italian, English and vulgar. Secondly, it moved me away in God from many respects. On the days when I thought I could be defiant by not attending any service, my father would literally grab us by the ears and pull us out of bed. And I thank God that, that he did. When I was in high school, one of my best friend's father was a Presbyterian minister. He talked about some of the kids that he went to school with, attending a teens group at his church, and he invited me to come along one Sunday evening. You see, the average age of my home church was about 75 years old, with very, very few young people. My brother and sisters, I think, brought that average age down, or else it could have been, could have been much worse. So I went one Sunday evening at 6.30 to this teen group he called Word of Life. I enjoyed it because we discussed issues that I thought were relevant to me and because I never really experienced that kind of interaction with kids my age in a church setting. And when it was over, my buddy said to me, hey, you're staying for our evening service, aren't you? It starts at 8 o'clock. I said, no. So it became Sundays were a full day of church, both in morning and in the evening. And as you can imagine, cut into my Sunday eating time quite a bit. As time went on, as I participated in Word of Life events, both locally and in the Adirondack Mountains, especially in the winter, I began to really see for the first time that just attending church wasn't really the real message about God and his salvation, but rather having that personal relationship with God. It wasn't until an evangelist by the name of Bud Hunter 
Preaching at one of those Sunday evening services was I truly convicted of my sins, realized I was destined and doomed for death, and then it was age, at age 16 that I committed my life to Christ. You know, it was really old school stuff back then uh, that moved me. I know today I hear Jay and Dave and others so eloquently preach from the pulpit about the message. And for those of us that maybe have not heard it or are hearing it for the first time, that we have a welcome package and we have people that we can talk with and people we can pray with. But back then it was a little more in your face because we'd be sitting there and you would get, if you were to die tonight, where are you going to spend eternity? Yes, I'm talking to you. Answer me. <laughs> well, okay, maybe a little over dramatization, but it was that kind of in-your-face charge that kept me and made me think about, what if I do die tonight? I'm going away next weekend. What happens if I don't make it then? So that's what one of the things that allowed me to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Ephesians 1.7 states, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. You see, leading up to that night, everything my parents and especially my father did led me to that place of acknowledgement of sin, asking for forgiveness and acceptance of his promise of eternal life. My father was the single most important person in my life. He never made a lot of money. He wasn't wealthy in worldly terms but he was rich in so, so very many ways. He never went beyond a high school education, but he taught me so many valuable and important lessons. He never held any position of importance in our town or in society or in the world, but I saw his sphere of influence around so many people. He was the kind of man who always made you feel better after you spoke with him, and I always did. I lost him in 2011, three years after I lost my mother. Both of them together now in heaven, looking down upon me as I struggled to become the man that he was, of which I know I can never be. And not a day goes by when I don't think of them or him. And for some time after he passed away, I didn't know why I was hurting as I was. For the first time in my life, I had no parents. Even when my mother died, I still felt a connection to my parents. But after my father passed away, I remember the first thought the following morning was, for the first time in my life, I have no parents. And in many ways, I felt very alone. But why? Why was there such a void? My father lived in northeastern Pennsylvania. I had been here locally for about the last 20 years. I didn't see him every day, didn't even speak to him daily. But there was something that I couldn't really understand for a long time. You see, what my father gave me was something so wonderful, and it's what I aspire and inspire, hopefully, to do to others today. He believed in me. He believed in me when I failed as a man, a husband, as a father, and a Christian. He believed in me when after 20 plus years working for the same company, I was downsized because of ethical concerns that I brought forward to senior management, which turned out to be my undoing. Doing the right thing wasn't doing the best thing, I remember telling him. Look where it got me. He would say, you'll be fine. 
Don't worry. Just keep doing what you're doing, and you'll be fine. We as men attach so much of our self-worth and who we are as individuals as to what we do for a living. It's natural, I think, because our DNA says that we are to be the providers. I also think it's no coincidence that DNA has three letters, and so does EGO. I was worried, I was angry, I was frustrated, I was depressed, because since I started working at the tender of young age of 10 as a paper boy, I found myself without a source of income for the first time in my life. And yet nothing else stopped coming in. Mortgage bills, taxes, gas, food, etc., etc. It was a scary time. But I also then remembered another three-letter word that wasn't close to my mind at the time, G-O-D. And the verse my father referenced when he was a young boy and their combined family had struggles. Matthew 6.31 Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? I found new strength, hope, and a determination in that verse. For anyone who has gone through a downsizing or lost a career, I think everything I've mentioned are all natural reactions. I didn't know it then, but it wasn't until you come through that dark place and you can look back with some perspective that a change is, God, is what God really had planned for me. I took the train into the city every day and complained about it every day. I left my home when it was dark. I got home when it was dark. The work was long, hard. I didn't really care for my supervisors all that much. And when I look back, there weren't a lot of things that I really enjoyed about that job. I remember speaking to my father about all the frustrations I had and felt, but he was steadfast in his message to me. You'll be fine. Keep doing what you're doing, and you'll be fine. He believed in me. Franklin Graham, in a Wall Street Journal article, recently expressed the greatest gift his father gave him. He said, quote, My father never gave up on me, even when I caused him pain. He lived like the gospel he preached, a message he repeated till his last breath, end quote. My father spent the majority of his life as an auto mechanic and a welder, working for one of his cousins who owned several businesses. You see, he felt an obligation that a debt be repaid because of what his cousin's family did for him and his family when his father died. But for years of just making ends meet, and working 60-plus hours a week, he decided to make a career change and became an insurance agent. For 25 years, until he retired, he achieved great success. When I was deciding in my early 30s to leave the retail food industry because of the long hours and the prospect of the family-owned business that I had worked for would probably be sold, he first talked to me about his business. I went with him on his appointments, for a while, I met his clients, and I saw what he did, from fixing broken radiators to dropping off baskets of food to those less fortunate. I never really heard him talk to people about a product or about buying something or just even sales of any kind, but it just seemed to happen. And when I asked him about what he did so well and for so long, he told me two things that he lived by. He said, hard work doesn't guarantee you success in life, but without it, you don't stand a chance. He also told me that in sales, 
if you take care of your clients' needs, your needs will be taken care of too. And I've tried to live by that philosophy in my working career, and so far it has worked. As time went on, I met a beautiful, faithful, and godly woman who chose me to walk through life with, and who makes me a better man every single day I am with her. And I thank God so much for her. I am truly blessed. We had children and struggled and continue to struggle with all the same things that all of you struggle with. Marriage, work, finances, sickness, children, and death. Throughout all of these struggles, I keep hearing my father's words. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. Well, in November 1993, with the birth of my youngest daughter, those words were put to the ultimate test. Hours after her birth, she was diagnosed with a significant and rare heart defect known as truncus arteriosus. She was life flighted from northeastern Pennsylvania, where we lived at the time, to a hospital in Danville, Pennsylvania, where the official diagnosis was made. Leaving that hospital, pushing my wife in that wheelchair down the hall from the last room on the left and hearing babies crying or knowing that mothers held theirs close to the, in their arms and we were leaving without ours was just gut-wrenching. And for any of you that have had a child or have a child with a significant health issue, you know exactly what I mean. I was angry, I was upset, I was mostly scared of not knowing what the future would bring. But once we made contact with the doctors in Danville, I began to develop a plan. But you see, it was my plan, not God's plan. My first discussion with the doctors was to ask how many of these kinds of surgeries and defects had the hospital seen. They told me there was about five, and that was over probably the last decade and a half. And of those five cases, how many of those children survived? The answer was none. I then began to call children's hospitals in Boston, Pittsburgh, and Philadelphia, asking the same questions. And after careful consideration, it appeared that CHOPS in Philadelphia provided the best opportunity for her survival, in part due to just the sheer population from which they pulled, they had seen more cases of truncus arteriosus and in fact did have better results. So I was convinced that we needed to move her from Danville to CHOPS as soon as possible. My plan, not God's plan. After more inquiries and ultimately a plan in place to move her, I was told that they would need to do a heart catheterization to assess the significance of the defect, which just wouldn't show up clearly on x-rays or echograms. Once the test was completed, we were told that part of her heart was bruised by that test, and that in her current state, she wasn't able to be moved anywhere else. My wife, whose faith was already being tested, since her mother had been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer six months earlier, said, don't worry, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. Several days later, we were told another test was needed to assess the leakage from the heart valves, which is common with this defect. Preliminary tests that were completed showed that the leakage was around a 20% gradient level. 
That's how it was measured. We were told that this test, this internal test, would determine the following. At the current level, she would in all likelihood require a heart transplant. Surgery to repair the defect would be a viable option, but the leakage level would have to be at 5% or less, and that was quite unlikely based on current tests. Over 20%, they would send us home, do nothing, i.e. enjoy the remaining time we had with our child. After the procedure, we met the doctor. He said he had no explanation, but that the gradient level was less than 3%, and that surgery would, in fact, be a viable option. My wife, whose faith never wavered, never wavered during this time, said, I told you, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Two weeks after my daughter's birth, we met Dr. Christian Gilbert, who was and still is an important part of our lives. He explained the surgery and the risks associated with that surgery, including my daughter not surviving. He told us of his background coming to Danville, Pennsylvania from Children's Hospital in Philadelphia because he wanted his family to grow up in a rural environment. And he also expressed and told us about his expertise in this type of procedure since he was only one of a few handful of surgeons who was able to do this at CHOPS. He did explain upon leaving that we should try to line up blood donors because clotting for this type of surgery and particularly with newborns was paramount. He said our daughter would be scheduled for surgery the next day in the early afternoon as he had another pediatric, pediatric surgery that morning. On the way home that evening, there were two prayers that my wife and I prayed separately. My wife said, I wish our baby was going into surgery first. I asked why. And her logic was the doctor might be tired after his first procedure. It was such a long and arduous surgery, she wanted him to be as alert as possible. My prayer was that if she wasn't going to have the quality of life that I wanted her to have, I prayed to God that he take her tomorrow. My plan, not God's plan. After making calls and trying to line up blood donors, we made it to the hospital the next morning at around 6 a.m. without much sleep, as you can imagine. Shortly upon our arrival, a nurse informed us that our daughter would be going into surgery first thing that morning. As the other child developed some sort of viral infection overnight and therefore could not have any invasive procedures done. I said, but my donors won't be here until late morning. I'm not ready for this. This can't happen. The nurse reassured us that the blood type of the first child was identical to the blood type of our child, and we would therefore use that donated blood for our child's surgery. God's plan, not my plan. After several hours of surgery, we met Dr. Gilbert again, and he told us a few things that occurred. First. The portion of the heart that was bruised initially by the catheterization was in, in an area that he needed to rebuild her conduit. So the part of the heart that was bruised was no longer an issue as he had to cut that part away. He also informed us that he was able to use her own tissue to build that conduit, 
which means the conduit would grow as she grows, but that the prognosis was still that she probably would need one or two more surgeries since the upper part of the conduit was built with donated tissue, and donated tissue does not grow. Nadine, named after my mother-in-law who passed away a year after her birth, is now 24 years old and hasn't needed one additional surgery, nor is she currently on any medication of any kind or any restrictions of any kind. God's plan, not my plan. Dr. Gilbert and I volunteered for several years at a camp for kids who were cardiac patients, and over time I got to know what a man of God he was and how strong his faith is. While Dr. Gilbert worked on fixing physical broken hearts, he also worked on repairing hearts that were broken spiritually. The Bible references the heart numerous times as being the center of our being, our spirituality, and many of us know loved ones, friends, co-workers who are in real need of fixing their broken hearts. When I think of Dr. Gilbert, I think of one of the Psalms which states, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Dr. Gilbert does both. Dr. Gilbert was diagnosed with cancer several years later and left the area for teaching positions throughout the country and participated in organizations such as Doctors Without Borders. Since he can no longer practice surgery because of his cancer diagnosis, he now heads up the Detox Center for Teen Challenge in Roarsburg, Pennsylvania. Peter 5.10 says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen and establish you. There is no doubt in my mind that God worked through Dr. Gilbert that day and all the hospital staff in bringing about this miracle for my family. Ultimately, my daughter had two additional surgeries to relieve fluid that was not clearing in her lungs. But after 120 days in the neonatal intensive care unit, we went home as a family. You see, all along, I had my plan. But my plan wasn't even close to God's plan. What about your plans? How are they working out so far? What about God's plan for your life? Are you ready to try his plan and not your plan? No matter where you are today, in your walk with God. He has a plan for you. It may not be easy, it may not be apparent, but he will reveal his plan when you ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance and will do wonderful and miraculous things in your life. Now, in the spirit of being fair and balanced, let me reference a recent news article discussing an Instagram post by none other than Tom Brady in reference to the Super Bowl loss. The author of the column referencing the Brady Post said, quote, It captures what I believe is the one emotion which is the most necessary when dealing with any kind of loss. In fact, it may very well be the most powerful of all emotions, gratitude. He stated, when we lose something or someone, the last thing we want to feel is grateful. It's much easier to feel anger, blame, rage, persecution, unfairness, and a range of emotions only to serve to distance us from the indisputable fact that we lost something or someone. How can we be grateful for the loss? See, the power is not being grateful for the loss. 
even though every loss does teach us something, but rather in being grateful for those things that we still have despite the loss. The people who support us, the friends who love us, the experiences and the opportunities to try again. So in my walk of faith today, as my focus is my children and their spiritual well-being, as well as those that I meet in my daily interactions, I try to be positive, to listen attentively when I should listen, speak when I should speak, and shut up when someone just wants to talk. And by the way, that is the hardest one for me. And to let my life be an example of someone walking with the Lord. So yes, I am so very grateful for all the experiences that I've had, both the good and especially the bad, realizing, realizing that the Lord is with us even, even in those bad times. So before I get the hook this morning, I just wanted to share with you a little bit about where I started in that small coal mining town in northeastern Pennsylvania and my early childhood experiences. Where I am today in trying to be an example of what God has done for me and to be grateful for all of it, both the good and the bad. And what my experiences have taught me, especially about loss, the loss of my mother and father and others close to me, the loss of a career. And then finally, where I'm headed. As my father worked for his cousin because he wanted to repay a debt for saving his life and his family, so too our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to repay my debt, your debt. So today and for the rest of my time on this earth, I am going to continue to trust the Lord each and every day with every breath and fiber of being that I have, knowing that my Heavenly Father sent His Son to die on the cross to wipe away my debt. And when I fail, and I do so often as a husband, a father, a friend, a colleague, I know that asking His forgiveness and strength and guidance from the Holy Spirit is what will allow my Heavenly Father to give me what my earthly father gave me. Those comforting words. Don't worry. You'll be fine. Just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be fine. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. May God bless and strengthen you every day of your life, knowing that keeping him at the center of your life, you'll be fine. We'll be fine. Thank you for your attention and your time this morning. Thank you, John.